new light to the darkness you're sitting on the hill. We ask that you move and stir in us this morning. <clears throat> that despite myself, you would um, awaken in us and move in us. And that we would hear your words more clearly today. That we can come together to be challenged and to celebrate. Thank you for that. We thank you for your son. For what he has done on the cross. And it is in your precious son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome. Good morning. As Mike said, my name is Michelle McKeska. Um, I am the elder here at First Colony Christian Church, the elder and elder. Uh, there, are, there are more, I promise. We're not that small. Um, so this morning we are continuing our series on family portraits. Um, so two weeks ago, Mike started us off talking about accepting unconditionally. This is our one of our core values here at First Colony. Um, and so we like to say here that the ground is even at the foot of the cross, that because of the cross, um, God has shown us that his love does not discriminate, that his love is to all. Um, and so we here at First Colony, we practice open communion. This is one of the ways that we do that. Uh, the table is open to all who would come to worship the king. Uh, and then last week for Mother's Day, uh, we talked about trusting God, where we looked at the life of Mary, um, a poor peasant girl, probably about 14 or 15, um, and she is given a revelation from God that she is to bear the king of kings. And she trusts in the God of Israel. Uh, the song that she sings right afterwards is this beautiful song it talks about how he, our God, the God of Israel, is the champion of the poor. The champion of the Marys of this world. And so she trusts, despite the odds, despite what may happen to her, she trusts in the God of Israel. And so today we are going to start on our third core value, which is serving selflessly. And today I want to mainly ask the question, what does Christian service look like? What does Christian service look like? Now, I am immediately humbled um, by the fact that I am presenting this sermon to you guys because I have, uh, and for those who know me better, I have yet to master service and selflessness. This is not my strong suit. Um, so yesterday we were, uh, I was able to participate in this online conference, which was amazing. I love technology because I got to listen to scholars reading their papers on my couch in my pajamas. It was amazing. I didn't have to go anywhere. I just paid a little fee, and I was listening to these amazing, amazing papers on Christ and the cross and a sacrifice. And another benefit was that I got to kind of pause midway and go get lunch. So I'm doing this yesterday. I've just, I've heard this amazing, amazing paper on Christ, how we should rethink the cross, and I'm going to get lunch really quickly so I can come back for the next paper. And I took my husband's car, which was my first mistake, because I forgot that his automatic window doesn't work. Okay? So imagine I'm driving up to Whataburger, obviously. Um, I drive up to Whataburger, and I'm now having to open the door and talk to the box. <laughs> so I've got the door in between me and the speaker. So naturally, the woman cannot hear me. 
And so she's like, ma'am, I can't, I can't hear your order. You need to, so I'm like, I've repeated my order five times and she hasn't heard me. So then I'm like, the patient's wearing thin and I just yell it. I yell at the top of my lungs. My voice doesn't really project, but I yelled and finally she got my order. So I'm frustrated, I'm steaming mad and I'm getting up to the window where then I have to pay again, door. So I, this is what I'm doing. And then I'm trying to grab the food, like get it through the space. It looks ridiculous. And I just, so I'm frustrated. So I get my food and I finally get out. The line was also long, which is always annoying when you're at a fast food place, okay? So I had to wait in line, got my food. And then of course I'm eating my fries in the car before I get home. My home is five minutes away from the Whataburger, but of course I'm eating the fries already. So I'm eating the fries and I'm getting thirsty. So I go down to reach for my Dr. Pepper, you know it's coming. They forgot my Dr. Pepper. So I had gone through all that, no Dr. Pepper. Now I am livid. I am so angry. People who know me are laughing because they can see this progression. So I am livid, angry, I get home, and then I start the next conference, the next paper, which is talking about Christ who is cruciform, which is what I'm gonna talk to you guys today about. So just to encourage you guys, this sermon is probably more for me than it is for you. Um, this sermon about serving selflessly, about giving more of ourselves and not expecting to be served in return. Um, so this ultimately, what does Christian service look like? This is going to lead us to Philippians 2. So if you'll turn there, that's where we're going to be. So Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 1. <clears throat> so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Paul starts off, he starts by saying that we are to regard others as better than ourselves. From the get-go, this is how we are to act as the church. To do nothing out of, uh, to do everything out of humility, nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Um, to not look to our own interest, but the interest of others. Now, how are we to do this? How are we able, okay, as human beings, to be able to automatically look to the other, automatically serve instead of wanting to be served? The answer he gives is verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That is a very wordy, and I feel like a very confusing sentence. So let me try and unpack this for you. Um, so one of my favorite scholars, uh, N.T. Wright, he translates verse 5 in this way, and I think it will help unpack this verse. He says, verse 5 should be translated like this. This is how you should think amongst yourselves, with the mind that you have, because you belong to the Messiah, Jesus. Paul would say it elsewhere in Romans 12 like this. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay. Also in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, 
The new has come. Ultimately, what verse 5 is saying is we have to change the way we think. We have to change the way we think. And we have to start thinking like Jesus. How would Jesus respond? Would he respond out of rivalry or conceit? Well, we have an answer for that as well. Verse 6. I'll start, I'll back up for verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So here's what Paul is saying. You are to have, you are to think the same way that Jesus thinks. You are to be of one accord with him. And what does he do? In verse 6, even though he was in the form of God, even though he was very much God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. A lot of scholars will say in verse 6 that the word though should be changed. It should instead read, because, because he is God. This is precisely how God acts. God from the beginning is self-giving. He regards others better than himself, and he's God. His very character, his very nature is one of self-giving love, agape, right? We say that God is love, ultimately because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So because he is God, he did not grasp for his rights. He did not grasp for his power, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, if you want a comparison, think about a human becoming a slug. Right? So you have degraded yourself voluntarily, because you are God. Because that's who God is. And we know that God approves of this because of verse 9. Therefore, because of his obedience, because of his self-giving nature, God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the paradox of the cross. What looks like a tragic accident, a horrific scene, is actually the victory of God. Is actually the way that he wants to operate. Which says something about you and I and our suffering and our service. It is not a defeat. Our suffering is imitating and mimicking who God is who suffers, who gives, in order to show love, in order to be victorious. This changes everything about how we think. This changes everything about what we do, how we wait in lines. It's me. Okay, so this is a challenging text. Um, these verses not only give us a new view of Jesus, right? But a new understanding of God. 
God glorifies Christ precisely because of his sacrifice. Because he was in the form of God, he does this. He gives his life. We therefore worship a God who is cruciform, cross-shaped. So think back with me to the creation narratives, if you will. Um, The story that we have in Genesis 1 and 2 uh, are beautiful stories. And so God, the the all-powerful sovereign one, he speaks and things come into being. Um, And last of all, the climax of his creation, he creates man. So we have the story of a very good God creating a very good creation. He calls it tov ma'od, very good. And then he does something incredible. He does something amazing. He gives his power to man. He says, here, I am putting you in charge of what I have just made. And all of us are thinking, maybe not the best idea. (laughs) Maybe you should have, you know, got somebody more qualified, somebody of the Trinity maybe, somebody else besides humans, right? But we, Genesis 1, also says we are the imago Dei. We are made in the very image of God. One of my favorite authors, again, says this is, we're like the angled mirror. We reflect out to the world who God is. Now, we all know what happens, right? Genesis 3, the fall. So the mirror is kind of smudged. It's kind of broken. But this is what Jesus has restored, the image. We can now again reflect who God rightly is to the world. And Jesus precisely does this through humiliation, through service, (laughs) through the cross. Not grasping at power, which if you remember in Genesis 3 is kind of what we did. We grasped for that power. We wanted to be God, not reflect him out to the world. So from the very beginning in the Genesis text, we see a God who is so powerful that his words create life. And then he decides, I want you to share in this. I want you to to come and enjoy what I have made. I want you to be stewards of this good creation. Because he is love, always thinking of the other. To the point where we would think it's irresponsible. But this is who God is. The Genesis narrative, the whole narrative of scripture, reveals a God who ultimately is fully expressed in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. If we look to Psalm 8, the psalmist who is dwelling on this is overwhelmed by this truth. Psalm 8, we're going to start in verse 3. And I forgot to mention, if you do not have a Bible, there are Bibles underneath the seats. And to say that from the very beginning. Um, so Psalm 8, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, 
and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is man that you are mindful of him? You, God, who have created the heavens, yet you have cared for us, yet you have invited us in to your joy. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. So as I said, the New Testament says that Jesus has repaired the image. We as humans are the imago Dei. It has been broken and damaged, but Christ has restored it. Therefore, the way for us to be truly human, to reflect the image of God, is to ultimately imitate Christ. We have been given a revelation of God, the fullest revelation of who God is in Jesus. If we long to be truly human, if we long to be the Imago Dei, we must imitate him. We must imitate him. So what does that look like? Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right. It's not too demanding, right? <laughs> Got this down. So love people that annoy you. Okay? I think that's even tougher, maybe. Maybe we've got the enemy thing down that's like across the sea. Okay, I can love that person from far away. But the person who's next to you in the cubicle, the person in the classroom who irritates the tar out of you, love that person. Pray for that person. Serve that person selflessly. That is a true test. That is a true call. That is taking up the cross. Because this is what Jesus did. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. While we did not recognize him, he died for us. He loved us. He served us. He came not expecting to be served, but to serve. I just think of all the gospel stories where the disciples don't get it. They just don't get it every step of the way. And he just has this patience and this servant's heart. Something that we are to imitate and something that we are called to do. It seems impossible, but we have a little help. Um, so I want to talk about the last verse here. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what does that look like? What is this perfection that we are to obtain? Because no one is perfect but the Father. Even Jesus has said that. So how are we to be perfect? Um, well, I think that we in the West, we've been influenced by Greek philosophy. We don't really realize it. So we think of perfect as this status. 
and aesthetic. Something that we have, um, like just we're never sending ever. Like we have achieved it, we've arrived. Um, but perfect, the word here is telos. The Greek word is telos, which means completion or achieving a goal. You're striving to reach this goal. Um, so then the question becomes, what is this goal? What are we supposed to achieve? This perfection. So any other um, Jew during this time, when they would have heard this word, would have immediately thought of Leviticus. Leviticus 11.46 says, You are to be holy as I am holy. This coming from God the Father. Jesus here is mimicking those words. He's repeating those words. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what is holiness? What is perfection? What is striving towards this goal mean? Well, let's look at that context here. It's right after he's told us to love our enemies. This is a litmus test to know when you've arrived. When it starts becoming easy for you to pray for people that annoy you, when it starts becoming second nature to give of yourself and to serve others, that's how you can know that we are becoming more, we're being more shaped into the image of Christ. We're continuing to be shaped in that cross shape. We're becoming more like Christ because he had reached this goal in the cross, in serving, in ultimately taking injustice and not responding, letting evil do its worst to him and not responding. Uh, I once heard this uh, radio interview with a really famous pastor, I will not name names, um, but he said, and I quote, I couldn't worship a God I could beat up. I couldn't worship a God I could beat up. But this is precisely the point of scripture, right? The word became flesh, suffered, was tempted, got beaten to a bloody pulp, and died on the cross. And he did this, Philippians 2, because he was God. This is what God of the universe does, gives, dies, accepts the punishment and doesn't inflict it back. Allows suffering, doesn't give it back. This is ultimately forgiveness, right? Reconciliation. When you forgive somebody, you are accepting that suffering. You're letting it work itself out in you. Instead of giving it back to that person and saying, this is what you deserve, you hurt me, and I'm giving you this. Imagine if God had done that. He didn't. He said, this is what you deserve, I'm taking it, and I'm letting it work out its evil in me. And ultimately, that's how he defeated Because three days later, death didn't keep him down. The ultimate consequence of our failure couldn't keep him down. He raised. He was victorious. God said yes to that. I approve. Raise up. Get back up. You were right to do that. When we forgive, when we serve, we are participating in that very thing. We are participating in the cross. We're letting suffering work itself out on us. And it is the hardest thing that Jesus has ever asked us to do and we're called to do it and to be that as the church. To be a church that accepts suffering. I do want to make a note. This doesn't mean that we're doormats, right? Okay? 
I do want to be clear here. We are not doormats. We still will raise up against injustice being when we see other people experiencing that, right? And say, that's not right. God is also the champion of the poor. We are also the champions of the poor. That's not right. But perhaps it means that our ways of going about it, the ways that we conquer and are victorious, are not the ways of the world. It doesn't look like maybe winning the entire Senate or getting a Christian president to office. God's power doesn't need our government. He's already king. He's already king. He's not fighting for that throne. They're fighting for his. The way that we conquer is by being faithful witnesses to the gospel. This is what Acts would call it, faithful witnesses to the gospel. So, obviously we're not there yet. Obviously I'm not there yet. Um, So what does Paul have to say for those of us who are striving? Uh, If you'll turn to Philippians 3. So Philippians 3 begins with Paul listing off all of his qualifications. I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. I am zealous for the law, or I was. Uh, I was from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, I was a Pharisee. In everything, I was blameless. And then he says, For Christ's sake, this is in verse 8, I have suffered the loss of all these things, all these things that normally would grant a person power and prestige. I've lost them all for the sake of Christ, and I count them as rubbish. Greek word is a bit stronger than that. I'm not going to say what it is. It is rubbish, trash, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I can participate with him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ or faithfulness of Christ, his faithful obedience to death. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So we as a church, we mimic this pattern from death to life. We suffer in order to achieve this resurrection. This is not a self-inflicted punishment, right? But we accept that maybe our lives are not going to be comfortable because we are Christians. Maybe we're going to spend our money differently because we're Christians. Maybe we're not going to be as concerned about protecting our family because we're Christians. Things change for us because we are Christians first and everything else is second. Now, here is some encouragement, verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Remember, change the way we think. We have to change the way we think. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. 
only let us hold true to what we have attained. So we have been given something. We have ultimately been given the Spirit. We have been given the Holy Spirit. So today is Pentecost Sunday. For those of you that follow the liturgical calendar, um, so happy Pentecost Day. Um, But this is, most churches right now are celebrating the fact, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and dwelt among us permanently. And we were given power and spoken tongues. And we started to see that we were being transformed. And it wasn't us. It was the Spirit that had come and dwelt inside of us. But Paul also speaks about striving and running and reaching towards this goal. So again, we have a paradox. We've been given a gift, and without it, we, I mean, we're done. It's not something we can do on our own. Yet, once we've been given it, we have to stay true to it. Here, that last verse, verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have attained, what we've been given. So serving selflessly does not come naturally. It is something that has to be worked and built like any good habit, right? Uh, Something that will eventually not become first nature, but second nature. Uh, And the early church seemed to have mastered this. Uh, So one of my favorite church historians that I made these guys over here read a bit uh, was Philip Jenkins. And he proposes that one of the reasons why Christianity spread uh, was because of how they treated strangers. Um, particularly during times of disease. So when the plague would reach a city, immediately the wealthy and the doctors fled. That's what you did. If the plague reached your city, you got out of there. Okay? Also, what was a very common practice, if one of your family members got the plague, you would drag them out, and you would leave them on the street to die. They also did this with babies, too. Um, If it was an unwanted baby, they would just lay down the street. Um, And Christians were known for picking up these babies, for picking up these sick people and taking them into their homes and nursing them. People they didn't know who were dying, who had a very contagious disease that would probably kill you. They picked them up and they took them into their house where their family was sleeping where their children could have gotten sick. That's crazy. That's irresponsible. Or is it a cruciform church? A church that really gets the cross and really gets the resurrection. We may die, but we have faith in a God who's going to raise us. We have faith in a God who's going to make all things new. There will not be any more disease. And so we're going to take this person in, and we're going to try and get rid of this disease. And if we die in the process, we will be raised. And Christianity spread like wildfire, because these people were like, why would you do this? Why would you take these strangers in? Also created some crazy rumors, like they were baby eaters, because they would pick up the babies and take them in their house. Um, But, for the most part, these people, sometimes they would actually get nursed back to health. And then they would say, these people who are strangers, they took me into their house and they fed me with food that was already, like, spare. They didn't have it to share, and they took me in sick and gave me food from their table. Uh, 
this is what the church's witness is. This is what it means to be a witness. It is a reckless, self-giving love that holds, above all else, a loyalty and a trust to the God who can raise the dead. It must then change the way we think. Uh, So, we've been going through the book of Revelation. We just finished it, actually. And it's been a very, very sweet time. Uh, But I was a bit nervous going through Revelation because there's lots of beasts that rise up out of the sea and dragons that take down stars and it's a lot of weird stuff in the book of Revelation. And so um, we went through it, but I was very much um, surprised by the, the hope um, in, in the midst of suffering. This was kind of the theme of Revelation. There's hope in the midst of suffering. You overcome by faithful witness. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read in verse 12. I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. So this is the Satan. Who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, the church, have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. So, test for my high school students. Greek word for witness. Martyr. Okay, I'm testing them. They've got their final coming up. Um, so the Greek word for witness is martyr. When we think of martyr, we think of someone dying for their faith, right? That's, that's automatically what we think of. It is because the word witness, the, a martyr, was usually giving their witness about Christ, and then because of that witness, they were killed. So it later in the second century took on this connotation of dying for your faith. But ultimately, the word means witness that they gave their witness to Christ and his cross and resurrection and they loved not their lives even to death and this is, this is what Revelation says this is how they've overcome this is how they're victorious by dying and suffering we have to change the way we think So this is going to be particularly hard for you and I. Because we live in America. Nothing wrong with America. But because we live in a society that is built on consumerism. Ultimately a society that is built on my needs get met. And they get met now. Um, I used to work at a restaurant in my uh, during the summer whenever I was in college. And Sundays were the dreaded day. Sunday lunch. Because it was always a big group, and they always wanted their food like then. Like you, and if it got mixed up, I mean, they were usually, and it's sad to say because I'm a believer myself, they were usually the least gracious people in that restaurant. That cannot be our witness. That's when it's put to the test. So I started thinking about um, just how much it is ingrained in me that I get to be served instead of serving. So I started thinking about my day, like what I do every day. So uh, this is what I came up with. Um, so I'm constantly in places where I get served. So at my school where I work, I go into the faculty room, and as soon as I get to school, I pour coffee that I didn't make. <coughs> and then I go and buy food that I didn't prepare. I drive home in a car I didn't build. And then I cook food that I didn't grow, check the mail that was delivered right to my door, 
And I started seeing every second of every day I am reaffirmed just by my pattern of life that I am served. My needs are priority. They're the ones that get to be met. And in order for you and I to be able to change the way we think, we're going to have to sit down and think about this. We're going to have to sit down and think, how am I served every day? How can I start forcing myself to give? Forcing myself to give of myself and serve others. And it's going to be hard. Now, I feel like, I'm going to change gears a little bit. I really do feel like our church is really good at this. I started thinking about um, specific people in our congregation who just give of themselves. Um, I always joke, and he's not here, so I'm going to talk about him, because he would get embarrassed if I brought it up in the first service. Um, but I always uh, say, I wish I had a bracelet that said, what would Rich do? <laughs> Y'all know Rich? Okay. Like, he is a person who embodies, who embodies this cruciform life. Like, this giving of himself. If you know Rich, if you don't know Rich, go sit down and just, like, get lunch with him. Just do that. Um, but he is our janitor service. Our church is small. We, as a church, literally can't function without our volunteers because we are so small. And so him and another guy, his good friend, they come on Saturday nights and they clean. They clean the toilets. They empty the trash. And to hear him talk about it, it's the highlight of his week. It's the highlight of his week because he gets to hang out with his good friend and they're just cleaning, doing their thing. He's also our resident, like, if it's broke, I'll fix it guy. So we've had several, like, floods in the back of our church. I don't know why. We just always... <laughs> flooding happens a lot. Um, and so they're always the ones on the scene, like right on the scene, just getting out the whatever those things are that suck up the water. I don't even know what they're called. This is why I need to work on this. Um, so they're always the first people on task. And I love that about our church. I could go on and on. Half of our people are in the back serving in the children's ministry. The other half are probably deacons, and the other half are probably elders. If you're here for more than, like, three weeks, we will rope you in. <laughs> you will be doing something. Because, our, like, we literally can't survive without that. And I think that's the most beautiful thing. I think that being this weird kind of small church forces us, forces us to be this cross-shaped church. And nothing against bigger churches, but it seems like there's just a lot of pressure to meet the needs of your people that come. You know, There's cops that direct traffic so they don't have to wait in the parking lot for a really long time. There's usually a coffee shop that like makes fancier coffee than Starbucks inside and maybe an indoor playground. I mean, not that those are bad things. I'm just saying, like, we literally can't offer you those things. I'd love to get a barista in here and maybe get us some nice lattes, but we... <coughs> We can't. We can't do that. But I think that us being small and being forced to serve also forces us to be a witness. Also forces us to be this cross-shaped church. And I think Jesus would view it as victory. I think Jesus would view it as overcoming. So today, I just want to leave you with some final thoughts. I, I hope that we as a church can be the outward expression of who Christ is. 
Ultimately, that's what the church should be. And we know that who Christ is, is the crucified and risen one. The one who suffered, the one who served. This is why our core value is serving selflessly. This is why we do it. Because we imitate him. We achieve this by being a church that also takes up its cross. By also absorbing injustice rather than inflicting it. A church that seeks the good of the other. And a church that is expected to serve instead of being served. Let's pray.